Welcome to the Say the Word podcast, where we'll dig into words and language as tools for curiosity. I'm your host, Cindy Givinoli, and together we're going to explore how language is used in literature, memoir, poetry, and all kinds of fiction and nonfiction to connect us to what it means to be human and how to use curiosity to peel back the layers of what's keeping us from living the rich, meaningful lives we were always meant to be living. Hello, hello, and welcome back. So how did your week of delights go? I was so thrilled to hear from so many of you, and I loved seeing all the delights you shared with me this week via email and on social media, so much so that I have decided for myself, I'm going to keep this going. This is my new gratitude practice. I'm always grateful for things that delight me, and that gratitude is so powerful, but You know, beyond that, I have just really been learning a lot through this practice of noticing and truly staying with joy, not out of fear that it will come to an end or that the other shoe will drop, but because joy is as much a part of the human experience as pain or struggle is. And to shortchange it by either not fully noticing it or allowing it only to be noticed solely for its fleetingness, I just don't want to do that. So... I'm just going to notice and feel the joy for itself and practice seeing it and feeling it. So I'm going to continue to practice delight each day, and I hope you'll let me know if you decide to try it out as well. Okay, so now today's passage is from the young adult novel You Should See Me in a Crown by Leah Johnson. I love this book, and it was a bit of a departure from my usual reading, which, of course, you know, is a delight. Now, I actually read a decent amount of young adult fiction, but this book helped me to realize that it's actually mostly dystopian or fantasy young adult fiction that I've been reading, that I haven't actually read that much contemporary YA. So this was an awesome introduction. Now, I will say this again and again and again ad nauseum here. Story is a powerful tool for empathy and understanding. I believe that there is absolutely as much to learn through fiction of every type and every genre as there is from any personal development or a nonfiction book. To relate to a character is to relate to another being, even when they've been cooked up by the imaginations of the author who created them. To be engaged and invested in an individual's story is to see their unique perspective, their unique set of feelings and experiences. And this helps to remind us over and over to see individuals instead of stereotypes or monoliths. It helps us to come in closer and it combats our inclinations as humans to make someone different from us other. Story, when approached with genuine curiosity, might just be the most powerful tool we have toward real understanding. And not just true stories, as in nonfiction, but stories that get at truths through their very fiction. And also, while we're talking about this, it also bears mentioning that stories can also help us to understand the people who love them, like love the stories. I mean, you want to understand your teenager? 
Watch what they watch and read what they read with genuine interest and real curiosity, setting aside what you think you know about the genre or the medium. What are they getting out of it? What exactly is it that's landing so powerfully for them? Be actually interested, no matter what your own opinion about that genre or whether or not it's to your taste. Seeking to truly empathize with the story itself, getting into the character's skins and attempting to really hear not just the surface level stuff, but the subtext as well. I mean, these stories, whether it's a YA book that seems initially to center around the protagonist running for prom queen or a romance about the struggle to find a partner who makes the protagonist feel seen and loved, or, I don't know, a multi-generational story about coming to terms with trauma and history and family. These are all gold mines of opportunity to better understand the people who love those stories as well as understand through the stories themselves. You know, it's not, it's the people we love, the people we share homes and communities with. These stories are gateways to understanding the people who matter to us. So some things you should know as we begin today. Again, no major spoilers, but some minor ones. So as always, skip this fiction week if you're sensitive to that. Liz Lighty is the protagonist in the story, and she is a high school senior living in a very wealthy and predominantly white small town in Indiana that is obsessed with prom and offers a scholarship to the students who win prom queen and king. She is tall and black and queer and not wealthy. She and her brother are being raised by her grandparents after her mother died from complications from sickle cell anemia. She has spent most of high school working very hard to blend into the background to offset all of the ways that she feels she sticks out. But now, despite being valedictorian of her class and first year in her orchestra, she did not get the scholarship money she needed for her college of choice. So she's roped into running for prom queen in hopes of landing the associated scholarship, and that is forcing her into more limelight than she's comfortable with. All right, so there are also a few things here that I think we've come to a point that are important to acknowledge before I move on. I am a white, cisgendered, straight woman from a mostly middle-class background, so I cannot pretend to have experienced firsthand what it is to be a member of some of the marginalized communities that our protagonist is. As such, I recognize that I am running the risk of missing important perspectives here. There are some big macro social justice conversations that could and are being had around this book. And also, this podcast focuses on the micro, on the universal struggles of being human. While I can't speak directly to what it feels like to be a black queer teenager in a small town in the Midwest specifically, I have experienced what it feels like to be a human trying to figure out how to be myself and what that even means what it is to struggle with identity and conflicting allegiances, and what it means to be seen by those I love, by my larger communities, and of course by myself. This podcast is ultimately about how each of us can harness our curiosity to live rich and meaningful and connected lives. And so that is what I will focus on here within the context of every story I share on this show. 
It's important to me to share a wide variety of voices on this podcast, and it's also important to me that I read and consume a wide variety of voices outside of my own particularly demographic bubble. Curiosity is a key tool for empathy and relationship, and I see that play out every time I hear or read or watch a story of any experiences outside my own. This is precisely what I'm talking about when I talk about the power of story. And part of what we talked about in episode 14, right? We cannot experience every possible experience in this life, but we can experience the full range of the emotional spectrum as a human in this life. And when we apply the things that we've felt And we deeply understand that every single person we meet from every single walk of life has felt all of those same things. That's when we can access our relatability, our empathy, our compassion for all of us doing this work of being a messy and imperfect human moving through our messy and imperfect lives. So I will continue to share stories with characters and by authors who are different from me, who have different life experiences from me. And draw out the universal themes and struggles of our shared humanness here on the show as best I can. And just to clarify, please understand, of course, and always that all of my discussion is predicated on an assumption of personal safety for all. So please keep that in the back of your head as well. Okay, so with all of that in mind, what do you say we get on to today's passage? Here we go from Leah Johnson's contemporary YA novel, You Should See Me in a Crown. I'm looking down at my shoes, a pair of Chelsea booties that used to belong to Gabby's mom and holding my wrist like I used to. I can feel my heartbeat in my throat and my eyes are burning at the rim like tears might be inevitable. Sometimes I'm convinced that it's never going to be enough. The good grades, the low-key clothes and hairstyle and attitude. I'm never going to be the type of person who makes sense to other people. I'm never going to be able to own every part of myself. Lizzo, I think what Gabby means is, I shake my head quickly and wipe at my nose. I gotta go, I gotta get out of here. It's fine, it's cool, I get it. I stand up and walk toward the door. I'll meet you guys before first period to hang up the new posters tomorrow morning, okay? I say a hasty goodbye to G's mom, who's in the kitchen stress-baking some new vegan apple pie recipe, and rush out the front door. I hop onto my bike, which is leaning against the Marino's garage. I've passed the homes in this neighborhood a thousand times before, pedaled down Gabby's street and thought of all the lives I could be living inside those big, beautiful houses if I wasn't me. I've never felt quite like this, though. Like I don't know if I'm running away from something or to it. All I know is that I'm tired, so incredibly tired, of having to run at all. Okay, so the primary point that I want to talk about from this passage is the idea of visibility and why it matters. Liz says, it's never going to be enough. The good grades, the low-key clothes and hairstyle and attitude. I'm never going to be the type of person who makes sense to other people. I'm never going to be able to own every part of myself. Now, she's tried to fit in by making herself small, pulling her hair back tight, wearing nondescript clothing, 
keeping the lowest profile possible in hopes of fading from view. She does not want to be seen, not out of some sense of privacy, but out of the fear that to be seen would be to be ridiculed, to have whatever others might view as imperfections put on display for derision. The to be seen would be to confirm that she would not be accepted for who she is. This is huge. I'm increasingly convinced that this is one of the biggest ways that we love and are loved. To feel seen is to feel accepted fully for who we really are, separate entirely from expectations or agendas. We cannot feel that we truly belong if we also feel like our real selves or any part of our real selves must be hidden. She says here, I'm never going to be able to own every part of myself. And what she means is that she believes that she can't own every part of herself publicly and still find acceptance, which has consequences, right? I mean, when we believe that there are parts of ourselves that won't be accepted publicly, we can internalize the message that there are parts of ourselves that aren't acceptable, period. Not that we have behaved badly or unacceptably, but that we are unacceptable, or at least some part of us is. This is what shame looks like, right? We talked about this back in episode six. And shame has real, very destructive consequences. As Brene Brown says in the talk referred to in that episode, shame is highly, highly correlated with addiction, depression, violence, aggression, bullying, suicide, and eating disorders. That is no joke. And Liz, throughout this book, has a pretty solid grasp on who she is and what's important to her. But she lives in a place full of social norms that ask her to hide parts of herself that make parts of who she is unacceptable within those norms. And so she feels like she can't belong there and that she can't allow those parts of herself to be seen. When we feel that we cannot be fully ourselves, we use phrases like wearing a mask or hiding, and this language all relates back to visibility, right? We cannot feel that we belong if we do not feel seen. But here's the thing, right? Visibility requires trust. In order to show all of ourselves, we have to trust that the people around us will accept all those parts of us. Now. In my early 20s, I worked for an outdoor program whose curriculum centered around Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And within this section devoted to the habit of seek first to understand, then be understood, there's a line that says, in order to be trusted, we have to be trustworthy. And I've always found that to be such a powerful idea. If we want others to be honest with us, If we want to be trusted with their most real, most true, fullest expression of themselves, then we must be trustworthy. Well, what does that mean? What does it look like? It begins, like so many things, with staying with curiosity and away from judgment. It means asking for more information, getting genuinely interested in the person in front of you, offering them acceptance and encouragement. It also looks like refraining from offloading our fears about whatever is being shared. Seriously, there are very few folks, I mean, I can't imagine there are actually any, but never say never, I suppose, that don't already have 
plenty of their own fear to contend with, especially as it pertains to something vulnerable about themselves. I assure you, everyone is well aware of how things could go wrong for them, and they do not need reminders, even well-intended ones. So keep your fears to yourself. Now, the same applies when it comes to ourselves. Shame makes us untrustworthy to ourselves, unaccepting of who we are on a fundamental level. It makes our own hearts and our own brains untrustworthy. And building trust in ourselves looks much the same way it does with other people. It takes practicing hearing our own self-judgment and getting curious and interested instead. It means doing the same when our fears want to push us back into that corner, back into smallness, back into hiding. And as we become more trustworthy to ourselves through our curiosity and our self-acceptance and our self-love, we begin to feel increasingly less vulnerable about owning every part of ourselves, about allowing ourselves to be seen. We require less and less external validation. We're less impacted by those who aren't ready or able to really see us and really accept us. And as we do this work for ourselves, we also become more adept at recognizing the trustworthy folks in our lives and surround ourselves with them. The people who are genuinely and truly excited for our success and who support us without smugly relishing our failures. The people who don't share our interests or passions, but show up for us when we pursue ours without always having to get it. The people who give us space to explore and find our gifts and whose faith in us never wavers even when they have no logical reason to hang on to it. The people who see us so clearly that sometimes they help us see ourselves. They never want us to be less than we are or smaller than we are or quieter than we are. And they also never want us to be more or bigger or louder or just different in any way than we are. These are the folks for whom we are enough, simply as we are. And wasn't it Jim Rohn who said that we're the average of the five people we spend the most time with? So, you know, just a side note, it's worth asking ourselves if those five people are trustworthy as well. Okay, I mean, I have so much to say about this, but I am running out of time and I do have one last point I want to make. Leah Johnson begins this novel with a James Baldwin quote. The quote is, the place in which I'll fit will not exist until I make it. And we can see where Liz is figuring this out in this passage, right? She says, I'm no, never going to be the type of person who makes sense to other people. She's in high school. Belonging to her looks like fitting in, right? But she doesn't feel like it's possible for her to fit in. She says she always imagines the lives she could be living in those big, beautiful houses if she wasn't herself and that she has to make sense to other people in order to fit in. But, you know, to refer yet again to Brene Brown and her research, fitting in and true belonging are actually not the same thing. In her book, The Gifts of Imperfection, she says, fitting in is about assessing a situation and becoming who you need to be to be accepted. Belonging, on the other hand, doesn't require us to change who we are. It requires us to be who we are. Oh man, that's so good. I'm going to say it one more time. 
Fitting in is about assessing a situation and becoming who you need to be to be accepted. Belonging, on the other hand, doesn't require us to change who we are. Belonging requires us to be who we are. It's so good. Now this feels so applicable here, right? True belonging requires us to trust ourselves so that we can be ourselves and move through our lives as ourselves. This requires that we, as Liz says here, own every part of ourselves. Okay, so Baldwin wrote those words in a letter to Sol Stein in 1957 while living in France, but he returned to the U.S. that summer as civil rights legislation was being debated in Congress. So without the full letter, I can't be entirely sure of the context of the quote itself. Was it about making a place for himself in literature? Was it about making a place for himself in the world or a place where as a black man he could move about his life in safety and freedom? I'm not entirely sure. But in the context of Liz Lighty and this passage and what we're talking about today, in the context of Brene Brown's definition of belonging as requiring us to be who we are, I'm going to just borrow his words to invite us all to make space to make a place for ourselves in hearts and brains that we've made trustworthy through deep and real self-acceptance and love, and to make a place for others where we value belonging over fitting in, where we stay curious about all of the infinite and layered parts of people and the things that shape them. Not every person in our life has to make sense to us in every way, for us to value those things that we might not even understand fully, for us to want to see them and know all of them, to cultivate a space in our communities and our lives and our hearts where every single person can feel seen without fear and accepted without caveat. Curiosity is the tool to embrace here, to deepen our acceptance and broaden what we understand to be trustworthy to ourselves and to others, and to open our eyes and our hearts so that we can see deeper and farther and more clearly. Oh, man, I am really not done talking about this, but I am just about out of time, and if I launch into more, I'm definitely gonna run over my 30-minute cap. So I'm gonna leave it here. Again, that is from Leah Johnson's fantastic novel, You Should See Me in a Crown which is always you can find linked in the show notes at cindygivinoli.com backslash podcast. And um, I will also link her newest book, Rise of the Sun, which I haven't actually read yet, but I have just been hearing so many great things about. So this week's listener contribution comes from Ellen B. And she says, Bridge to Terabithia by Katherine Patterson was my favorite book as a child. I recently found my old copy at my parents' house and decided to read it with my nine-year-old daughter. I've been meaning to send you a quote that resonated with me for a while, but didn't know what to send. But when I was reading with Shay, this one jumped out at me. The quote, he may not have been born with guts, but he didn't have to die without them. And Ellen says, it just reminded me that I can choose courage over comfort at any time, that I can be brave about my life and my decisions, even if I haven't always felt brave in the past. I told Shay that I like that line, and now it lives on our refrigerator in word and letter magnets, which, of course, I love. Oh, Ellen, I love that. So, holy cow, I have not read Bridge Terabithia since I was a kid, and I remember it making me bawl my eyes out. 
So I think I'm going to have to revisit that one. Thanks a lot, Ellen. My to-read list is getting untenable. Um, Okay, so okie dokie. This next week's episode is featuring the work of another Ellen, Ellen Malloy, from her collection of desert essays called Seasons. And I can't wait. All right, until then, be sure to stay curious out there. That's it for this episode of the Say the Word podcast, where we explore how language is used in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry to connect us to what it means to be human and how to use curiosity to peel back the layers of what's keeping us from living the rich, meaningful lives we were always meant to be living. Be sure to share and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And I would so appreciate it if you would go ahead and leave a review. Thanks for listening. I'm Cindy Givinoli, and I'll see you next week on Say the Word. Say the Word.